Welcome to Sports and Society. It's April 13th, and I'm back with Kyle today. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. Doing well. I uh, probably will watch the Masters today instead of doing all the work I need to do, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I, uh, I can't blame you, although I have to say that my golf viewership is very tied to who is on the leaderboard, which I find to be an interesting phenomenon. Um, and of all the people at the top of the leaderboard right now, I have to say that Tiger is interesting, but also Louis Oosthuizen is maybe the second most interesting, which does not bode well for how interesting the leaderboard is right now. I think I could draw some conclusions on what makes an interesting leaderboard for you. <laughs> okay. What would that uh, be? Anyone that on average drives the ball over 325 yards, you're immediately going to dismiss. Yes. Anyone that embodies the classical toxic masculine model, you're going to dismiss. Uh, and then you're most interested in these smooth, kind of artistic, lesser known, but still great top 30, top 40 players. And so when one or two of them pops in, then you're like, whoa, okay, I'll watch this. Yeah, so I mean, like, I have to confess, I'm a. I can go for Ricky Fowler. You know, I still am a yeah. bit of a Spieth fan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's hard. I'm looking here, and I'm like, it's interesting. I I'm interested by Molinari, but I'm not. Um, he doesn't captivate me. Yeah. Um, just because you know it's weird. It's the Italian thing is interesting to me. But yeah, Day Capka Scott. Dustin Johnson, none of those folks are interesting to me in the least. Um, they all they all do the exact same thing. It's just who can like make one more putt over yeah. the four days. Yeah, I have to say I do. Ustazen has a special place in my heart. A because he's probably a terrible person, but um, <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. just be real. But um, he's got a beautiful swing. But second. I don't think he likes playing golf. And so that for me is like this really interesting dynamic of this guy that I think really just wants to hang out on his farm in South Africa. And yet he's really good at golf. So he goes out and makes money and then uses it to just go hang out on his farm in South Africa, which I can totally resonate with just wanting to go hang out on your farm and just do that, which I think is uh, why he resonates for me. That's interesting. I, I that what made that made me think of whenever these uh, oil rich countries have showcases and invite these players to come play for like a million dollars. Louis Oosthuizen is always there. <laughs> uh, yeah. His agent, his agent must have like sultans on speed dial. Yeah, that's oh, funny. My. Well, what uh, what got you going this past week? Well, on golf, and I'm mostly saying it to just kind of be a thorn in your side a little bit, <laughs> be a little bit of a punk, but uh, I enjoyed uh, Tony Romo finishing dead last uh, at the PGA tournament that was opposite the World Golf Championship. Um, I, I'm somewhat joking. I, I respect that Romo is trying it, and I agree that Romo and Steph Curry are phenomenal golfers, but I also think it is uh if as i've said many times on this podcast not that anybody is listening to every episode we've ever done but uh you know it it shows how 
exceptional and fine-tuned and nuanced someone has to be to play at that level. Uh, I mean, it, he really only hit like two bad shots uh, on his first round where he shot like an 82 or something. But that's that's what it is. Like you mm-hmm. can't hit those two bad shots. And so there were 123 other guys and hit those two bad shots. And so they beat him. Well, it is especially on, I think about, um, that's interesting, the two bad shots piece. I'm not going to dig into the Romo piece because I don't particularly care for Tony Romo. And so whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I am intrigued by that two shot thing, just because there are the difference in tournaments is amazing. And that, you know, I think about the Masters and I think you could, you might disagree, but I think you could win the Masters having four or five really poorly hit shots per round. I mean, not like my poorly hit shots, but PGA Tour poorly hit shots. Right. Where there are other tournaments where these guys are going to finish at 20 under where you can't right. have any slip-ups and right. you're just done if you do, which is an interesting kind of, you know, when you bring when you make everything hard, it's kind of okay to make more mistakes than it is when it's, What's a scorer's course? Right. Yeah, there's so many reasons people love Augusta. I think 98% of the reasons are lame and racist and elitist. However, uh, that golf course is exceptional in the sense that it, it does exactly just that. Is it, uh, it has a way of leveling the field. And so, to, I mean... This week is the perfect embodiment of that. And I think 53 players made the cut because if you're within 10 shots, you make the cut. And there's 53 people that literally have a statistical chance of winning this weekend. That's that's the golf course, I think. Oh, my. Well, what what about you? What were you paying attention to? Well, I think uh, fans of the podcast may know that – a little team that I'm fond of has uh, gone and outdone themselves and <laughs> accomplished what I believe to be one of the greatest redemption arcs in the history of college <laughs> athletics. I, I I don't find any hyperbole in that at all. Uh, I think that's completely accurate. <laughs> oh, outdone themselves. I love it. No, so what what does make you say that? I I don't disagree really. What so, what makes you say that 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 arc is so significant? You know, so um, here we've got UVA. If you don't know what I'm talking about, has won the national collegiate basketball championships last week, and what was I think perhaps the most stunning run of three games in a row to win the tournament I know of. I mean, just they were losing in the final 15 seconds of three straight games and won all of them, including two in which they were losing with less than one second on the clock, um, which is just mind-blowing to think about. And all of this coming a year after losing to a 16 seed for the first time ever that a one seed had lost to a 16 seed. And so to take one that in one side and then take, turn it around into this great joy on the other side... Um, is I think one of the best arcs we've seen. You know, I think the the comparable arc that people have argued is that, you know, North Carolina um, won a year after they lost at the buzzer uh, to a great shot from Villanova. And my response to that is kind of, you know, that's a great story, 
but North Carolina has won a bunch of championships, and also they didn't lose to a 16 seed. Like that's not that's not the same thing. And so I just think it's a, it's such an incredible story to see these same guys, which you know went through then heartbreak. Apparently, there's a story that Ty Jerome's parents stayed up with him until like two o'clock after last year's loss because he was crying in their arms. Um, and now to turn around and have this as the the next year is just pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. To what extent does do the other factors play in for you too? Of uh, I think Tony Bennett stands apart from kind of the accepted model of what a head coach is supposed to be like. I think UVA by itself has never been in that top five, top six club but they've been great the last 10 years. Maybe 10 years is too much, maybe eight or nine. I don't know. Uh, and then also that they seemingly are bucking the norms in some ways that they play a very intentional style of basketball, that defense is so important. And so does that add to it to you for, for calling it so significant? It does. I mean, it makes it, it's all part of why, you know, I think about you and your fandom of university of kentucky and how i don't i don't i think you've said this and i don't know for sure but i believe you've said that um you know wins with coach cal are just not as valuable as the as they could be um and in the same way wins with tony bennett are just feel so good because you know this guy is you know i feel i hate when people say this crap about um better person than he is a coach because he's arguably the best college basketball coach in the country right now yeah um, but i think he would tell you that he's a better person than he is a basketball coach well he wouldn't tell you that but you know what i mean i know i know what you mean yeah um and it's it stands out in things like you know after the final four the the amazing purdue game he had this statement about remembering his dad said something when they went to the final four which was that when you remember what's really important, your family, your friends, um, your faith, whatever, um, then it allows you to care about these things and put meaning into these things that are seemingly significant, such as sports, which that kind of attitude is exactly the kind of person I want to root for. And so it just makes the kind of indication all that much better in some ways. And so, I, you know, there's a a podcast I love uh, called One Shine Podcast, which is amazing if you guys are looking for a college basketball podcast because they make fun of everyone in the <laughs> most amazing way, including having uh, a bag guy, B-A-G guy, every episode to say who's dropping the bags for their program, which I just think is the most amazing thing That's in perfect. the world. Uh, but they have become UVA fans in some ways because – they talk about how this is just different, you know, in the FBI stuff, it never came up that UVA was involved. They've never been part of any of the scandal type stuff. You've got Tony Bennett who last year handled this loss, like, you know, better than anyone I think could have been expected to handle that loss. We saw folks in this tournament lose in much more respectable games and be much less dignified about it. Um, so yeah, it just makes it, I love seeing these kids in some ways that I've, I feel like I know on some level, and Tony Bennett, who in particular, I feel like we know a little bit about his character, be rewarded for that hard work and the and just the strength that they put into this season. There's another piece, too, that I would be interested to hear what you think about. And it, I'm thinking now that it 
could even be a topic uh, for a future podcast, but the connection between geography and a team insofar as there being a relationship between the horrific events that happened in Charlottesville mm. and UVA winning a national championship in basketball. And it, it's something that it's a common headline in sports, right? And when a city has something awful happen and then their sports team does well, those two things are very easily put alongside each other on the front page of a newspaper. And I, I wonder what Charlottesville and UVA together feel <laughs> about that. Um, or, or, and then I, I guess I'm just throwing it out as a general question of um, to what extent is that real? Um, how, how, how much does that matter? And, and um, it's not like I'm by asking a question saying if you answer in the affirmative that that's crazy but it's just always interesting and fascinating to consider that connection, I think. It is. And, you know, I think about um, a conversation I had with a guy who was high up in Dan Gilbert's organization with the Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken and all that kind of stuff, who talked about how um, we would not believe the amount of investment that the Cavs winning the finals brought into Cleveland in terms of people that open up their pocketbooks to invest in that community afterwards and you know that may not have always been the best kind of investment but that's the kind of psychological thing that i think this can have i think it goes back to the same question that we have in some ways about the olympics you know we all know at this point that the olympics are an economic drag on every host country and community Um, right and yet at the same time there are a bunch of immeasurable things in terms of pride um and things like that that i think it could be argued over overrule that economic sheer economic impact at times. I'm right. not necessarily saying that, saying that that was the case in Sochi, but there are places like I could see Rio being an argument for this gave them uh, a, a belief that was important for that community to have moving forward. And I don't know, it, it's a really intangible way to think about it, but I, I kind of feel that as a, as a thing. And these two people that really value qualitative research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like that an answer to that question is only available through asking people what they think and mm-hmm. he- hearing how they feel and how they experienced it and then trying to quantify it. But uh, yeah, just going straight numbers, you you miss out on the beauty of it really, I guess. Well, you know, and it's there are times when the numbers explain it all. I mean, we've right, seen that there right. are communities that are like, we this money needs to be spent on other things, right. but there are also times we've seen these communities be up. You know, I think about South Africa during the World Cup. I'm sure South Africa did not make any money on the World Cup, but that changed their perception in the world in some ways, and I think that that was huge for that country. That might be a perfect segue into our main topic for this week of uh, <laughs> looking at this series on cricket in India. Absolutely. So this week we're going to talk about the Netflix series Cricket Fever, Mumbai Indians, which I presume uh, I have not done. I think you may have done a little more research into this background than I have, but I presume it's something they intend to make a series out of, similar to um, uh, how the NFL has done their behind-the-scenes series and things like that. Um, But essentially what this is is a behind-the-scenes look at the Mumbai Indians, which are one of the teams in the Indian Premier League which is a six-week cricket competition, uh, T20 cricket, 
Um, very intense, very popular, perhaps the most specularized game in the world, in the cricket world. Um, um, but it's wow. a really fascinating look at what the inner dynamics of that team and a really interesting season they've chosen to do it as well in which the Indians coming off of a championship are struggling a bit. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a perfect way of saying it. And I think it's worth pointing out even a bit more clearly that uh, T20 is a key part of all of this. Uh, like the game itself and how this version of cricket is played is a true character in the series uh, because there wouldn't be the spectacular nature of IPL in India uh, were it not for the format. And so T20 being that there's only, not to go into all the rules of cricket, but I think it's worth understanding that you get 20 overs, which are somewhat uh, similar to an inning in baseball. And those are all the balls you get. And so you get a set number of balls that you can swing at and what often is the case in T20 cricket is that it comes down to the last couple balls. It is exceptionally common uh, that it comes down right to the end. And so there's an, a, an incredible amount of drama just in each game, which is uh, a key character, I think, in what makes it so popular. Well, it is, and I think it's worth pointing out. I love that idea, and this is part of what I think has made cricket successful all over the world, no matter what kind of cricket you're playing is this concept of setting a score and then the other team chasing it, yeah. uh, which means you're almost always going to have close matches. Right. Um, rarely are you going to see the chasing team if they have to chase down, you know, 140 in a T20 match. Are they going to come out aiming for sixes in the first few overs? Right. You know, they, their whole strategy is dictated by we have to get to that number and we have this amount of time to get there. Right. Um, which I just find it's a really fascinating way to play the game and it also means that there's drama almost every single match you're playing in yeah it takes a highlighter to the part of sports that can be most compelling that being the game or what the game uh necessitates from you as a competitor driving how you play the game uh and so i, I think that's always um it is it's just dramatic and fun but uh, this series is fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons. And talking before, we both have like 25 different things we could talk about within this series. Uh, do you want to pick something out that stands out to you in the first place? Yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the things that the f the first episode, I think, really sets the tone for this, um, which is making me want to bring up another point. But um, we'll start with this and just say that they start very early on focusing on the ownership, which I think is a really key part of this story because I was, to be honest, you know, it's painted as so normal. It didn't shock me at the moment, but looking back on it, the involvement of the ownership group in the day-to-day -day running of the team, including being in the locker room and talking to the team after matches, is just kind of staggering. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I I I I think there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about here but uh it, so it's the Ambani family which I have to admit to being ignorant of uh but they're the richest family in India is I've understood and put together yeah Reliance Technology or something like that I think right right uh and they're 
famously uh, recluse, and so they often are known for being hard to get to, but they live this outlandish lifestyle, uh, going so far as to have a 47-story family estate. Uh, it has a permanent staff of 650 people, <laughs> and it's valued at $2 billion. Uh, that's their house, and so that's who owns the team. And the patriarch of the family uh, has very little role in the day-to-day -day of the team. Seems to not care team. at all. Yeah, it doesn't care at all. And this seems like something he bought for his son uh, and to some extent his wife to oversee. Uh, and so that it's his son and his wife um, running this team to a massive extent. And I found one of the most staggering moments of that and they did well to produce it in such a way and chop it together in editing that uh, essentially the Mumbai Indians coach was saying uh, we need to be less hard on ourselves we need to diminish the pressure we feel and we just need to go out and have fun playing cricket again they were, we're too uptight <laughs> and then like 30 <laughs> seconds later uh uh, the owners walk in and say, we wanted to let you know that next week there's going to be 20,000 homeless children in the stadium, and you have to win for those children. It is your responsibility as cricketers in India to win this next match. So the pressure couldn't be higher. Just like completely contrasting what the coach was just asking to the players. Um, and I, I feel like that like uh, pinpointed the absurdity, or maybe I, that's too strong the uh, interesting relationship between ownership and team. Yeah, it's just, well, and it's, I don't think we often get that look. You know, we know, we hear these folks, and, you know, growing up in, in the Virginia area, we know about how Dan Snyder is as owner of the Redskins and how ridiculous he is. We know the stories of Jerry Jones, you know, and you, you know the Marge Shot stories in Cincinnati. Um, we know what a problem involved ownership is, and yet it's amazing to me that it continues to be a storyline in major sports, these owners that won't get out of the way of the, of the teams that, that know better. Yeah, and I think it plays on that assumption that we carry that these powerful people are abnormal, Moreover, that these really powerful rich people uh, know something that the rest of us don't, and like that's how they like got there. But in reality, they probably are there to a large extent because of their ego and because of their mercenary-like approach to the world. And so, to see a camera put on that is—it's there's comedy in it. Uh, it comes. It's kind of that that fine line between tragedy and comedy, but uh, this episode I think is almost in a backhanded way. It's I feel it's really slight, but I feel like they're kind of making fun of the ownership. Um, it well, it a, seems a little exploitive, and so at sometimes I think there is, you know, and it's I kind of don't I get that, but I kind of don't mind it because there's this yeah, great yeah. moment where. Um, you know, he's the the guy, the son who is essentially running the team is walking into his apartment and he's waving back to the camera. Do you remember this saying? I do, yeah. And he bumps into a wall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he like kind of stumbles and then he starts singing. <laughs> yeah. he's, like, he's like, what is this guy? Yeah. This guy's like the nerdiest, weirdest. Yeah. And yet 
no one is going to dare question him on anything. Yeah. Which is just, I, I really enjoyed that. Like, you know, showing this guy for kind of what he is type thing, not necessarily him. You know, he probably doesn't care for it, but at the same time, I think it's also, you know, he has not found his place where he belongs. And yet this is where he's carving out a place for himself. And so that makes me think of something else we we talked before before we started recording, and I found it very interesting or very um, something just that se- seems significant or uh, worth pointing out is so this Kardashian like aspect of it that you're kind of describing, I think, of seeing these rich, powerful, uh, not easily accessed people do silly things like bump into a wall and get really excited about a game. Uh, these things we know are like super compelling in the world. Mm-hmm. And then to have it be kind of this cultural outsider uh, experience as an American watcher, in that we both didn't know who the Ambani family was, <coughs> and yet they're at the level of Kardashian fame in India. And so it would be like watching the Kardashians, but not knowing who the Kardashians are. Uh, and so that watching a documentary series about a cricket team that features these super famous people as an outsider uh, is an interesting experience. I don't know if I have much more worthwhile to say on that, but uh, I guess it, it, it highlights even more the normalcy of any human experience. Mm-hmm. And so I like had the thought, I bet if we like put uh, cameras in Warren Buffett's office, we would just see normal people doing very normal things uh, at the height of like economic power in the United States. But no matter where you go behind the walls of any institutions, it's just going to be people being goofy. Well, it is. I think it's a really, you know, this kind of show does an interesting thing. And I hadn't thought of this before you brought this up, but it kind of strips away and shows the absurdity of that fame argument in some ways. Yeah. Um, and so there's a number of players in here that I find really compelling. But one of the most compelling things for me is this guy, Mahela, whose last mm-hmm. name I cannot even begin to pronounce, so I'm not going to try to, um, who is the coach and is one of the, perhaps you could argue, the best Sri Lankan batter of all time, or in that conversation at least. Yeah. Um, and it's really compelling because, A, I would note, to begin with, he's really good in the technical stuff at pointing out things for the batters can do better, but is really poor in the locker room stuff. Um, and so, but yet I imagine in India and in, in, as a person who knows that fame, it's really hard to imagine him not doing well in that. In the same way, you know, um, they've named Rohit Sharma as the captain of this team and he underperformed and did not do act like a captain the entire season i was deeply underwhelmed by his kind of uh you know he talked a lot about communication but didn't seem to do anything about it which i was like this guy is maybe a great cricketer but should not be the captain of your team and it brings up that whole thing like what happens when the best player is not the right personality to lead or any of those kind of things and just when you strip away that that mystique of um, celebrity. I think it's interesting what you find behind it. Yeah, I think it it does a number of things for me too in the sense that seeing these incredibly able athletes 
completely fail at leadership uh, is fascinating just on, by itself. Like that, that is interesting to watch uh, and evokes a certain sort of like emotional response even uh, as you're watching it. But I think it also gives credence to those that believe so deeply in what I would call the Belichick Tom Brady phenomenon mm. in that like what are they doing that no one else is doing well one they don't let cameras in <laughs> so if if you <laughs> if you want to be great maybe one of the first lessons is don't let cameras in uh but secondly uh I think it says like well no some people are just better at leadership and Bill Belichick I don't think he was a football player to was he? I don't even know. I don't know, yeah. Um, but that it's not about having played the game that's going to transfer to being an excellent coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's just kind of like a, a truism of sports that we see all over the place. And it almost like is, as I often feel let down by punditry, uh, I think it does make me think that, well, when pundits talk about like that team has great chemistry and how important it is or uh, they really respect their coach or the ownership or um, things just work well in that organization. I think of the St. Louis Cardinals mm. uh, that can win uh, perennially with not million dollar talent top to bottom. And so I, I don't know. It, it was interesting to see that piece. I agree. Well, I think it, it's uh, it's also fascinating. I think because that brings up for me this question about the India piece, which I will say that you know the person that really stood out to me and I thought was my favorite player throughout the season was Kieran Pollard, even though he didn't play mm-hmm. particularly well. That like he got pulled at some point, and they made a note of celebrating him because he was even when he got pulled from the lineup, he was the first one with water bottles on the field and all that kind of stuff. And that's the kind mm-hmm. of stuff you want from your Right. leadership but it was also interesting that i think he and sharma and these indian players felt the pressure in a way that some of the other players didn't so i think about you know ben cutting and mcclanahan just as non-indian players i feel like they had a looseness that nobody else on the team had in some ways yeah they seemed like visitors well, they're just uh having which they a good truly time. were right <laughs> like um i also meant to look up how much the australians on the team were making um but I did, I did look, look up that yeah. you did. You looked at this, I so did. I see Sharma at two point four million, and Pollard was eight hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, but I didn't look up the Australians. Well, it's it, when this is what makes this all mind-boggling on some level, right? Is that they, um, you say those numbers, and that's for six weeks of work, um, right? Which you know, um, so let's see here, the. Um, so McClanahan is making this year one hundred and thirty nine thousand, which is about what I would anticipate he mm-hmm. made last year. Um and Ben Cutting is not on the team this year, but I would imagine he would have been somewhere in that same uh ballpark. Um but it is fascinating. I think about, you know, Hardik Panja here making one point five million, which is just a fascinating thing. This guy uh who grew up there with nothing um, is probably be being slightly overpaid compared to those outside players because he's such a celebrity for the team. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, part of me wonders the extent to which those uh, 
the, the guys that play for India's first 11 on the international team, the extent to which they care about IPL, I, mm. I, I have to think that they already have so much money. I mean, some of them have hundreds of millions. I mean, they are very, very wealthy. And so even 2.4 million to Sharma, I doubt that that's that significant to him. And uh, because the format is so contrived, uh, it does seem like they have built up uh, a city-based following. But even that didn't have the real fervor that you see in something like the English Premier League mm -hmm. uh, in soccer. Uh, as in the IPL is only, what, 12, 15 years old? I don't know exactly. I think 2008 was the first year. Okay. Yeah, so that fandom piece is mostly there for the spectacle, I think. Uh, and so the players are playing to the spectacle. Um, but that's countered by how they did seem legitimately upset when they lost like four in a row or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I felt like Sharma was just kind of there to have a good time. <laughs> he wasn't terribly put out when he wasn't performing all that great. Which it's really interesting, you know. I I juxtapose that with uh, Boomrah, who is also I think, along with Pollard, were my two favorite kind of characters from the show, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, who just seemed really like a fascinating fellow, um, and he's a younger guy, which I think is part of it as well. That when you know, it reminds me of LeBron versus Giannis this year in the NBA. That Giannis is doing everything he can to put his stamp on it. Where you, LeBron is like, all that matters is the finals at this point. And I could see right. Sharma being like, all that matters is what happens when I put on the Indian uh, yep. colors. Uh, yep. Whereas Boomer is like, I have to do whatever I can to make it. I haven't gotten to that point where I can afford to to care one way or the other about these things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't imagine they care anywhere near as much as they do about the Cricket World Cup uh, yeah. with IPL. Yeah. Which does, I do want to carry on with this boomer thing and just ask you as someone who has played this, you know, I'm always struck by the absurdity of being a bowler in cricket. <laughs> and like, you know, you can be so good. I compare it to baseball where a good pitcher can consistently shut down the other team. Mm -hmm. I don't know of any, I've not seen any evidence that there's a cricket bowler that can consistently shut down opponents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it has something to do with the nature of the game in that uh, batting in cricket is easier than batting in baseball. And so, you know, even if you don't have uh, overs where you gave up um, no runs, uh, I mean, if you're just giving up like maybe one, four and over and then a couple singles, like that's really successful. Uh, and so... Uh, they have a lot of terms to discuss efficiency in bowling that, to be honest with you, I still don't understand after like four years of watching this game. I still don't understand how they talk about it. Um, so I think the great bowlers are not shutdown bowlers like we think of a shutdown pitcher. Uh, so I, I think part of it is the nature of the game. Uh, but there are. There are bowlers out there that uh, their strike rates are just noticeably higher uh and so they're a little bit better than everyone else um that's a real thing and then i think a lot of it too um i've had to be con convinced into being a believer of this but a lot of it is positioning uh 
Mm. And Cricket is just now getting into this uh, data um, revolution. And so uh, knowing where a batter normally hits off a certain type of bowler uh, is becoming really important because catches are so rare uh, in non-T20 cricket, but even in T20 cricket too, uh, having some data points of essentially what you can do in cricket is the ultimate shift all the time. Uh, So you can put everywhere, all of your fielders wherever you want between each ball. Uh, And so a lot of that is coaching uh, and knowing how a bowler is bowling at that particular point in time and where the ball is going to go off of a certain batter. Hmm. Um, so a bowler can be made better by a good coach and better data, I think. Interesting. Well, it does, you know, I think about, um, there's a comment early in the series about Boomra about how he's probably the best bowler in the Indian Premier League. Um, and he also gets wickets, which is an interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. I, as an outsider, you just assume... Well, whoever gets the wickets is the best bowler, but that's right. that's not. Those are right. two distinct skills in some ways. Right. Yeah, I think what I also have learned, and someone there's a, several billion people that know more about cricket than I do, but uh, how important it is to be able to bowl short balls and have it bounce right at the batter's feet. And it doesn't usually get a batter out, uh, but it also handcuffs them. And they don't they they don't get out, but they also don't do anything. And so a bowler that can do that consistently is better than someone that can smash the wickets, which like looks so much cooler. Um, so it, it's it's a nuanced thing, I think. But it also makes me uh, think about Malinga, uh, who is on this team and featured but not featured in this documentary. And that I only have heard him talk once in four and a half episodes. I don't know if he talks in the later ones, but no. he's certainly not mic'd up, uh, which I think is interesting. Well, but, he's not playing either. Yeah, so he's just in an advisory role. Uh, I read that he wanted to take a year off, and the team was like, sure, yeah, you can take a year off. Um, but Malinga, I guess we should say, is a Sri Lankan bowler. Uh, he's very well known. He's one of the best of all time, uh, but he's also really flashy. He has his hair dyed. Um uh, lives a really loud lifestyle uh, when he's not playing cricket, but it's also his arm action that he kind of throws sidearm. And so it it has been broken down. There's books written about him uh, <laughs> that go insofar as to discuss the geopolitics of his arm angle. Uh, and it, it's the short version is that because he throws sidearm, it is essentially kind of like an anti-colonial thing to do hmm. uh, in that he doesn't play cricket properly. And so what he has done is taken something from the street and taken it mainstream and done it better than the colonial oppressors taught him to do it. Uh, and so it, it it can be like a way into discussing the colonial history of cricket and all of that. So, but that but that he's not mic'd is interesting, isn't it? It is, well, and it's. I wonder, you know, this these this crew. And this can kind of get us into the questions of the show itself, but. I wonder if the crew even kind of if they recognized it or if it just wasn't something that was on their radar when they went into it. I was I was unclear as the show was going how much they actually knew about cricket before they went into production. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think gets into the question which I found to be fascinating to explore of why they made this. Right? And like 
I know why HBO makes hard knocks, and I know why their last chance you has been made. I, I know why these behind the scenes uh, shows about American sports that we all know about get made. Uh, it's pretty unprecedented, I think, right? That I mean, on like a hundred levels, the fact that Netflix exists is interesting. Mm hmm. Uh, the fact that Netflix has enough money <laughs> to spend on something like this. And then uh, through some research found that this is a Condé Nast production and it's one of their first uh, forays into video. Uh, as their magazines continued to die, uh, this is what they kind of want to go with. And that they chose India is interesting, that they chose cricket is interesting, and that they chose Netflix as their platform is interesting. I think all those could be unpacked to have um, conversations about things that really matter right now. Yeah, there's so much there. And I think about, you know, the market that Netflix is trying to capture with this is really fascinating. Um, you know, personally, on a very uh, selfish standpoint, I would love to see Netflix go after streaming rights for IPL matches yeah. uh, when those come back up. Because I could see that being a really fascinating partnership. Um, yeah. And India is just such an interesting thing. You know, I, I struck, um, I was talking to a guy uh, that works out of the same building I do who does a lot of work, import-export for hardwood products to India, China, Europe, beyond. Um, and he was talking about how the culture of India is so different from China and that China kind of wants to take over the world, whereas India is, doesn't seem to want to take over anything. They just are very much in their own space, which is an interesting kind of dynamic that that's... Um, hmm kind of they're a, a more insular country in some ways but that it's a it's such a fascinating look at things and it's also i mean i was just struck again and again how you know we know that the caste system remains an issue in india and this is really the stories we're hearing are the only ways that people get out of their caste in mm -hmm. india these days is through this right. bollywood or this and that's it right. Right. Um, which is just a fascinating angle to put on. And so I think in some ways I look at it from the sheer storytelling perspective and say they're just incredible stories to be told in this that are not the same that they would get other places. Right. Yeah, and it's the good and bad of Netflix, I think, in that I think it's undeniable that – I mean, there might be a couple people high up at Netflix that like really love the Mumbai Indians, but I doubt it. <laughs> and so I, it, Netflix is doing this because they want into the Indian market. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they know there's 700 million people there that will potentially have a Netflix subscription. Uh, and I, I just, that's world changing to me. I, I don't, I, yeah. I think, I think that's massive. I mean, mm -hmm. If Netflix gets into India and to other big countries around the world, Netflix is going to show us what a version of a production company can be that we've never seen before. And if we agree that these production companies are some of the most value or most powerful pushers of culture, uh, then we're on like step one of what globalism really looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things that makes it clear to me that I think we're like 500 years from knowing uh, what matters right now uh, as far as like how culture at a global stage is being pushed. Um, so that may be somewhat of a stretch, but that's kind of where my mind goes when I think about Netflix having 700 million new subscribers. 
when you can already see that conflict in the series. You know, I think about Ishin Kishin, who is one of the odd and interesting characters. You know, this young guy whose parents, I think, don't speak a lick of English. And, our, you know, his mom, he talks about praying all day for him every day. And yet he's this very metropolitan individual who stays out all night and parties perhaps the most of anybody on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. You already see that juxtaposition of a, a, a worldwide culture clashing with India, which I do, I do think you can argue has a more insular culture, whereas you look at China has kind of embraced um, consumerism. And uh, India has too, but in a, a slightly different more religious way than I think the Chinese have, which I think is an interesting dynamic and you know what that looks like in that market moving forward is going to be fascinating. Like I'm not sure that, you know, the office is going to take off over there, but there could be, you know, who knows what it is that is on that platform already. That could be the next thing that resonates in that space. Exactly. Exactly. And we, I think it's the it's the numbers that are always so staggering, right? When you think about the population of these countries and if they follow on the path of development to where they do have a robust middle class at some point in time, uh, it makes me think about like how laughable it is of these old school Hollywooders that like don't like Netflix mm-hmm. and they're they're like I think of how stupid and pointless the Oscars are becoming. And this this old guard is fighting against Netflix. It's like those Netflix folks that are in the office and seeing the data coming back from India have to be laughing so hard or like at the Oscar people. <laughs> like, dudes, we have bypassed you already. Like catch up or you're going to be nothing. Like this is a whole different version of how content's going to get out into the world. You know, it was fascinating. We, um, we watched uh, Black Panther last night. It was the first time I'd seen it. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to say that it was interesting to me to juxtapose it with Roma, which we've watched the first half of, and I don't know if I'll ever get to the second half of watching, but um, Roma being this very classical, you know, put me to sleep, but is also clearly an incredible film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Black Panther, which in terms of the cultural zeitgeist is huge, but mm-hmm. I would not argue is perhaps the same level of storytelling and yet gets nominated for best picture as well. And it's just fascinating to see that like the, the Academy trying to figure out where, how it understands what the importance of a picture and those kind of things are in the, in the modern era. It is, it is. I haven't seen Roma. You know, it's three hours of slow, really powerful filmmaking that I just don't, seem to have the time and energy to make it through right now mm-hmm. yeah but i will say if if you guys are interested as listeners and learning more about india uh, i would highly recommend the netflix film which is not a netflix film but is on netflix delhi belly which is what happens if seth rogan tries to make an indian movie um, <laughs> which i think is really actually fascinating to me from a cultural sense of like indians don't do comedies they do it's just not something that is useful, usual in their film industry. And so to see something like that, it's really fascinating to me. Yeah. Also, just rather fun and uh, to see what 20-somethings are like in India these days. I'll check it out. Yeah. But uh, any any more comments on uh, the Mumbai Indians? I probably have many, but I think uh, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up. 
Well, I will just leave with a couple quick comments. One being, Mahela has got, and the ownership has got to stop trying to make adjustments in the locker room after losses. What the hell are they doing? Yeah. You cannot fix problems in the 15 minutes after a match is over. Well, see, it also made me think of how uh, (laughs) in its infancy the IPL is and how they seemingly don't know what it's like to play a season and what works and doesn't work from a coaching aspect, I, I think was interesting to watch. Um, that that you would never hear an MLB uh, manager go in the locker room after a loss and talk like that. Yeah. 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 It's just, it was kind of staggering. Like, what is, and it's also, and you know, this, it's also goes back to in some ways the role of a coach in cricket is so different. Yeah, and you think about soccer and cricket. You just kind of put your your teams out there, and they do what they do. Right, uh, and you can try and dictate things, but it's really hard to get anything across. Whereas in American sports, the coach is right there the whole time. Right, right. So I can only imagine, in some ways, the frustration of being a cricket coach and just watching your team and not being able to do anything about it. Yep, yep. But anyway, well, shall we share what's uh, intriguing us about the coming week? Yeah, what about you? What are you be looking for? So I am interested in the Masters, even though the leaderboard doesn't interest me that much. But I will share that tomorrow morning I will be watching Perry roubaix which is perhaps my favorite race of the cycling year, um, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a bunch of folks riding over cobblestones as fast as they can and just essentially riding through dust for five, six hours and exhausting themselves more than any of us have ever been exhausted. So, yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre and it's so fun to watch. It is. I mean, you think about like, so these road bikes that these guys are riding are just so specially designed to go on flat surfaces and to be super efficient. You know, they're all this aero stuff. And yet then you go out and put these on, put them on, you yeah. know, what's still like over the course of about 250 K they'll ride about 80 kilometers on these pave, these rocks. Um, and yet their bikes and bodies are not designed to do it at all. And yet it's every rider that does it seems to love it and want to go back and do it, which is, that's such an interesting phenomenon because I would seem like you would hate it, but they all seem to really want to do it. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, I'll be, uh, watching, to see LeBron James become uh, the first player coach. Uh, I I would not be surprised if L.A. uh, did not hire a coach and just let LeBron James coach. Um, I mean, what's they're talking about Tyron Lue, who, like, all he did was let LeBron coach when he was there. So, you know. Yeah, they're going to set up a situation wherein he is the de facto coach. Uh, And so I... I get. I I just lament uh, this for Luke Walton. Um, I thought I by everything I saw, I thought he was a great coach, mm-hmm. uh, and I think he speaks to the new generation in a way that a lot of the old school coaches do not. In a way that I think is appreciative, and respectful, and not demeaning and slave like. And I I thought he was uh, a great person to kind of. At, in LA, a, a, a premier organization kind of lead us into the next generation of what coaching in the NBA looks like. So I've, I, I have no idea of what the inner dynamics were at all. None of us do really, I don't think. But um, 
Yeah, I, I'm usually a big defender of LeBron, but th- this one frustrates me that uh, he's pushed Luke Walton out of L.A. I don't know why I care about that, but it has. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's, you know, my big question at this point is I don't, I don't think LeBron, uh, he's going to prove me wrong because he always freaking does. But um, if I had to put my money on it, I would guess that he will not win another championship as the best player on his team. Mm, um, yeah, that could very well be true. Uh, I think the way that he has handled this season has just been so poor. Mm-hmm. I think they had the talent to be the third or fourth seed in the Western Conference, and it just totally fell mm-hmm. apart for reasons that are really difficult to understand in terms of these all being professionals out there. Right. Um, but it's all fascinating. You know, I think about the internal nature of that. You know, L.A. is such a weird sports culture, uh, not least the Lakers. I mean, UCLA went through the worst college basketball coaching search we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And just wound up with Mick Cronin, who is yeah. like – no one's first choice for a college coach. Yeah. Um, and I just, that is not going to go well. But to see this and to see Magic Johnson yep. freaking quit in a press conference without telling the yep. ownership that he was going to do so. Yeah. Um, like, it's just a staggering situation right now. And I have to put a lot of it back on LeBron and his, not necessarily even just LeBron, but his team. You know, Clutch Sports has screwed this season up in a big way. Yep. They mishandled that Anthony Davis situation massively. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I, I have to say that I'm almost never on the ownership side, but there was a moment where with the New Orleans Pelicans where I was like, good for you guys for not just giving in to this demand to be traded here. Yeah. I um, thought they played it perfectly, the Pelicans, that is. Yeah. Like, no. we don't have to do that. No, we're going to we're gonna right. do what's best for us. Right. Um, which I have to say, you know, like, it's such a weird dynamic, that ownership player dynamic. But it is, um, it'll be fascinating to see what moves forward with this. And we know that, you know, Jimmy Buss has never been without some kind of drama. But uh, I, I do hope that they'll be able to turn the league that around because it's better for the league when the Lakers are are a good team. I agree. That being said, I'm really rooting for the Bucks to win this year. You love the Bucks. I I love a team where they bring in a new coach and the coach is the one that like kind of brings everybody together and it changes everything. Right. Uh I don't know why I love coaching so much, but I do. So Well, I think we see in the Cricket Fever documentary that it matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. You don't want your coach in the locker room being like, hey, guys, you're underperforming again and again and again. Oh, shit. Okay. That's Man, what I wanted to hear. If I was a player in that locker room, I don't know how I would handle that. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to take my 150000 and just go sit on it, and you guys have a good time. Yeah, exactly. And- <laughs> Which is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, good deal. All right. Well. Who who's your money on for the Masters before we go? Uh, I think you're going to be disappointed because I think it'll be Brooks or Dustin. Oof. Odds on Tiger? I think he'll be there. I I think uh, I could see him two or three under today and then making a run tomorrow. Uh, honestly, I think the hottest player in the field right now is Xander Shoffley. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that guy seems to just have massive confidence. Uh, I, I think he could make a run today. And I don't hate him, even though his name suggests that I perhaps should. But... <laughs> yeah, it, Xander. His, his, his name is misleading of how you grew up. Yeah. All right, man. All right, dude. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Give us a rating review wherever you listen to us. Please subscribe, and we'll be back next week for you. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.